Welcome to the MFP Live podcast. I'm producer Courtney Munkier. On this episode of MFP Live, Donna Ladd and Kimberly Griffin speak to David Ray Morris. David is the author of Love Daddy, Letters from My Father, a book that examines the loving but complicated relationship of father and son through letters and photographs over the course of 20 years. They discuss David's difficulties growing up with his father, Willie Morris, who had become a larger-than-life personality but also struggled with alcoholism. The book comes 22 years after the publication of Morris's first book collaboration with his father. My Mississippi, which was near completion at the time of Willie Morris's sudden death in 1999, was a collection of essays and photographs of and about the state and its people by the Mississippi native father and the son who came to the state as an outsider. Although David is not a Mississippi native, Mississippi is often featured in his photography. Currently living in New Orleans, David has done extensive work in New Orleans, including extensive photographic documentation of Hurricane Katrina, which resulted in a solo exhibition called Do You Know What It Means? The Aftermath of Hurricane Katrina at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art. David's photos can also be found in private and public collections, including the Ogden Museum of Southern Art, the Louisiana State Museum in New Orleans, and Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. Here's Donna. So we have a really cool and special show for you guys tonight. We are going to be talking to David Ray Morris. Welcome, David. We are thank, tickled thank to have you. Donna. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Kimberly. It's great to be here. And I feel like I have to, I should, as a journalist, start out with a bit of a disclaimer. I've been friends with David Ray for a good number of years now, especially since he and his family and I and Todd, my partner, spent Katrina with them in the same house in his stepmother's home in Joanne Morris, who's a very good friend of ours, right here in the neighborhood where I live now. And really, that's when we got to know each other. And part of that, which I want to start with here, is that David and his family were up from New Orleans, where he didn't know the conditions of what was going on. I think you're you had a lot of work back there, a lot, maybe, I'm guessing maybe a lot of these letters were in your home back. I don't know that, but I can imagine that might be true. And we had power at the Jackson Free Press, even though none of us had it in our homes. And so we had returned to the Jackson Free Press to, to reboot our coverage of Katrina very quickly. And I'll never forget David Ray's presence in and out of the JFP offices, which kind of became all of our media headquarters, and then you were going to the coast and you were going to the Gulf Coast, you were going back to New Orleans, you were taking remarkable photographs and really document in this very emotional way, documenting this work. And so that's, I guess that's where, that's both where my friendship with you started, but it's also, we shared this very emotional time and I'll just never forget you sitting in the on the floor of the Jackson Free Press offices editing photos and just the emotion of not having any idea what was going on back there at your own, in your own home. And, and of course you put me to work right away. My first Katrina assignment was for the Jackson Free Press. That's right. That's absolutely true. Going, going down to the Coliseum and photographing interviewing people who had evacuated who were set up in the Coliseum. Yeah, and it's true. It's no we both and others around us had this real sense of urgency, just that we had to do the work. But I also think it's, we had to stay busy. It's just it's the journalism, the journalist and all of us came out that we 
had to get out. And that was the sense I really got from you during that period. Talk a little bit about how that that time and going through all of that kind of affected the affected you as a person, but also at, as a photographer. Katrina really was, it still is the story of the century. And it fell in my lap. I was working on various little projects, but I was always waiting on the big one, the big one to come along that I could latch onto. And sure enough, Katrina came along and it basically defined my life for the next three years and for good and bad. And I think it was probably not until 2008 or 2009 after the phone had stopped ringing and the assignments had stopped that I realized how deeply affected I was by the storm and how PTSD really is a real thing. And it affected me deeply and I wasn't, I wasn't going crazy, but my coverage of Katrina was proved that I could do it because I've basically been a freelance photographer most of my adult life. I worked for several small newspapers in the 80s in Mississippi and Tennessee, and then went off to graduate school and could never really find a full-time job after that. I did some work for the AP. I did some work for Reuters, but Katrina fell in my lap. And so it was the, the biggest story I had ever covered. And it was in my own backyard. It was a very personal, it became a very personal story because the floodwater stopped a block from my house. I know people who lost everything. I know people who lost relatively, got through relatively unscathed, but we were all affected in New Orleans. And so we, we have this camaraderie here that's starting to fade a little because it's going on 16 years since the storm, but it's still ever present. It's still, I still have pictures hanging on my wall from Katrina. It's still very much a part of my life. And everything going forward after Katrina had a different, completely different tilt and spin on it. And I've not done anything since then that comes close to the level of coverage and the level of intensity that I did for those three years. Well, we're talking today about this new, and I'm telling you, it's not because I'm it's not because we're friends that I'm saying that this is a remarkable book. It's a complicated book. There are photos of all of you, your family, Willie's friends over the years. I never knew Willie. I didn't miss him by that many years, by the time I met the rest of your family, but through y'all. And then now even more so, it's to, I feel like I know him more and in a complicated way. As because of this very honest book that you've done. So go back, however you want to do this, but I'd love you to set the table for folks about your first deciding to become a photographer and maybe how, how that was, how that's, it's an important thing in the book, I think, as you're coming into terms with your own creative journey and I think you write, I know you write in the book that you use the phrase, I think you did, or Kaylee Jones in the forward, one of the other, in the, sh- in the shadows of someone like Willie Morris, such a large, a legend, but also just a large, larger than life person when he was with us. So talk a little bit about how all that ties together for you. How I got into interested in photography is also very related to my father, My his first book, North Toward Home, which was a memoir about growing up white in the South in the 1940s and 50s, was published in 1967. And he, the Saturday Evening Post, which was one of the great old picture magazines, along with Look and Life and Collier's, 
they were all very still very active in the mid 60s they decided that they were going to publish several chapters of north toward home and they wanted to recreate scenes that my father had written about so they hired me when i was 7 to play my father to recreate these scenes in the book and it came out the issue came out in october of 1967 which was when the same month that North Toward Home came out. So at the end of, we, we came to, to do the bulk of the photography in July of 1967. And I had been in and out of Mississippi. My grandmother was still alive and she still lived in Yazoo City. But it was hot. I remember that, July in Mississippi. And we spent two weeks with this renowned German photographer named Hans Namuth and produced a series of portraits. And I actually still have the original negative proofs from the project. And I have the original issue too, which is in the other room. Otherwise, I would show it to you. And at the end of the two weeks, they gave me $75, which was a lot of money for a seven-year-old in 1967. And they gave me a Polaroid Swinger, which was the top of the line consumer brand of camera at the time. And that was my first real conscious effort to make pictures. And I still have an album that has many of the pictures I took with that camera. We subsequently, we went to, as a family, we went to England for several weeks in August of 19, the following year, 1968. And then my mother and I went to France in 1969. That's it. That's the Polaroid Swinger. And at the, at, after a year, I graduated to the big Swinger, which had a, was a bigger, a bigger image. The regular Swinger was only about this big. The big Swinger was a little bit bigger. And there are actually two pictures in the book, Love Daddy, that were made with the Polaroid Swinger, the front piece, and then one, I think, that's in my introduction. And I think they use the borders so you can tell that they are different from the other pictures in the book. But from there, I just, I kept making pictures and I moved on. I had an Instamatic for a while. And eventually, by the time I was 14, I had a traditional 35 millimeter camera. And it just went from there. And I, I learned how to work in the dark room. I had my own dark room in our apartment in New York and processed, processed my own film and made my own prints and went off to college with a real interest in photography. And that's the direction I went. And eventually I ended up working at, as I said, various newspapers as a staff photographer. And here I am now. Wow. I love this book because I understand what it is to have complicated <laughs> Southern bigger than life parent. So this is really nice to read. I'm going to switch gears and talk a little bit about what it was like growing up with Willie as a father, but I always want to ask people this question. When did you realize, what was that moment when you realized that your parent was pretty a big deal? What was when you go, oh, this is not normal? I think I was fair, still fairly young when I realized that because when my parents were divorced in 1969, I was nine. And up to that point, we would go, we had a country house in upstate New York and on at certain times we would go across the little valley to Connecticut and be entertained by William Styron, who I don't think I quite understood who he was at the time, but he was a turned out to be a great literary figure. And we would go to all these parties and there were just all these big people there, people who just had this air about them, this air of confidence and this air of accomplishment. After my parents were divorced every other Friday, I would get on the subway in New York City and I would ride from 14th Street up to 42nd Street. And then I would take the shuttle across town to the Lexington Avenue line and then go down 
to 34th Street and get off and go straight to the offices of Harper's Magazine. And my father had the corner office and there was no telling who he would be entertaining when I went to visit him. And again, we would go to lots of parties and there would be people I knew and people I didn't know. I remember one party where Bill Bradley, who was one of my sports heroes, because he was a player for the New York Knicks in the late 60s and early 70s, he was there. So I just remember a lot of people being around my father and just knowing that he commanded this attention and this respect from all of these people. And it was the beginning of the shadow, as you were, the beginning of trying to figure out how to navigate that space as a an adolescent soon to become a young man. It became more complicated as I got older for reasons we'll talk about. But I think early on, it, it just became obvious to me that he was, if not larger than life, he certainly commanded a great presence. One of my favorite lines, and I am going to use this, and it's not the exact line, was, I'm not saying he was a bad parent, but he certainly wasn't a good role model. And gosh, how many of us have that story? So you talk about growing up in the shadow of your father, who was brilliant and charismatic. So those that's the combination that can, you know, expand and push other people out. And you but you also were working with your father in at a very early age. He was paying you for photos and I can't remember which book. I, I think I had out I of his I own have, pocket. Oh, I think I had the jacket picture for the last of the Southern girls. Yeah. Which was not very good. And then I he helped initiate my pictures being in several projects. And it was, I was never clear whether there were times when he would say, it's just easier for me to pay you. And I didn't know whether that meant that I wasn't going to get paid otherwise, or (laughs) if it really was a bookkeeping, it was just easier for him to give me money and for them than whoever the client was to give, to pay him. But it stifled independence because as you're growing up, and you're an adolescent, you certainly want to establish your own boundaries and your own. And one of the one of the things is making your own money. So right. I would always kind of roll my eyes when he would say, I'm going to, it's easier to, for me to just pay you because he gave me money all the time. He would give me money when I would go off to college to make sure that I had enough money to pay my bills and to, to, to be stable. And that was definitely necessary. You reach a point when you want to be able to do it on your own. And so that's, sort of inhibited that a little bit. Yeah, everybody doesn't reach that point. There's a lot of people that live their entire lives on based in nepotism. Mooching. Like they don't mooching. ever think mooch but nepotism. Like they have a job, but they can't they're never gonna get fired because a parent or a uncle or somebody got them the job and it's actually their company. So that's never gonna happen to them. And I, I want you to talk about what it was like in New York with him carousing a little bit. Um, Cause honestly, that really did sound like a lot of fun to me. <laughs> so when I was younger, it was a lot of fun because I would go to his office on Fridays and we would go to the Empire Chinese restaurant, which that was one of his bases. Or we would go see the Knicks play basketball, or we would go bowling. Madison Square Garden has like a 48 lane bowling alley underneath the arena. Or we would go see the Mets play. We would go to baseball games. And so it was very active. And as a 9, 10, 11-year-old, it was a lot of fun. 
when my father left Harper's in 1971 and moved to the eastern end of Long Island, where he had a series of, of houses that he lived in, it became a little different because the eastern end of Long Island is much quieter. It's not New York City. And I was growing up in New York City, so I was used to all this excitement going on around me and all this art and all this music and all of these bagels and pizza. I mean, it was a great place to grow up. The eastern end of Long Island is very quaint, potato fields, the Atlantic Ocean on one side of the island, the Long Island Sound on the other. And the town he eventually settled in, Bridgehampton, there were four bars on Main Street. And he was welcome at every single one of them. And as I grew older, of course, this was the 70s and nobody cared about underage drinking. I could drink in three of them when I was 16. And the fourth one, which was Bobby Vans, which my father helped put on the map, they let me start drinking there when I was 17. Of course, the drinking age back then was 18. And again, nobody really gave much about underage drinking. And there were lots of parties. There were well-to-do people who would throw parties and there were political candidates who would throw parties. And in the summertime, the Hamptons, we think of the Hamptons now as being glitzy and and exciting. Back then it was just East Hampton and South Hampton. Bridgehampton was considered the other Hampton. It was the Hampton that you drove through to get to East Hampton. And so it was much more sedate and much more, much more quiet. That's not to say that there wasn't lots going on there. But so as I got older and I got more embedded in my father's lifestyle, it became a little more challenging as I got older because after a while it became clear that this was not a very good trajectory for somebody to be on, for a teenager to be on. So it wasn't really until my early 20s that I started to have serious doubts about whether I really wanted to keep drinking. But my father had set this as a role model. This was his lifestyle and he was not going to change it. So it it made for greater tension the older I got. And I know you you know this about me, but I'm the I like to say I'm the child of two alcoholic fathers because of my stepfather at, after my real father and and fully aware of the difficulties that the alcoholism caused in their lives and our lives. And I I remember after moving back to Mississippi 20 years ago, living here in Jackson and in Mississippi, everybody's got a Willie story and they're hilarious. Your father and his stunts and his tricks and his practical jokes. And then your mother, your stepmother, Joanne, has obviously told me so many of these Willie stories. I've heard from you, but I do remember, especially early on, hearing a lot of those stories, knowing, uh, knowing that, especially stories that other people would tell, not you guys as much, but other people around town about him being in Oxford or the late parties and all of this stuff. And I always remember thinking at the time, there is another side of this, that we're all really enjoying the legend of Willie Morris. We all do. I mean, and he, and I don't, necessarily think there's anything wrong with that of la- of these stories but i think what you you really take on i think in this book and talk openly about is th- his drinking and how difficult that was for him and how and for others and how one and how it was, he didn't want to be talked to about it so I want you to talk a little bit more about that and even if it, how it was it difficult for you to get to that point of 
talking about those kinds of things publicly. What was that journey like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was a great burden when I was in my early 20s. And as I said, when I began to realize that I had to take better care of myself. And that basically meant that I couldn't go out and drink every night, which is more or less what I did when I was around him. And I had to start thinking seriously about who I was and what I wanted to do and where I wanted to do it. And there was a moment in 1983 when I had been offered a job with Sid Salter at the Scott County Times. And I was on my way to, to, to Mississippi and I stopped off in Oxford and I made a point over dinner of, and it was very, one of the hardest things I'd ever done, of basically telling him that I thought he drank too much and that he needed to stop. Other people had done that before and would do in the future. And basically they got excommunicated. They were no longer invited to be a part of the circle. He couldn't excommunicate me, but it was still cause for a great deal of tension and resentments for several years. And of course, he did okay for a few months. And then on my 24th birthday, and I write about this, he showed up at my birthday party with three bottles of wine and proceeded to just go wild. And I was, it was really humiliating for me. And so there was a lot of pain um, and a lot of resentment. But the focus of this project really was about how he could write these beautiful letters and these beautiful letters were kind and supportive, but they didn't always reflect the reality that I saw of who he was and how he was living his life. So there was this contradiction in my mind. And by this time, I was, I was doing photography on a daily basis. And I was always a shy kid. And the camera gave me the license to be something else, to be, to have courage, to go out and to photograph news. It takes a great deal of focus and responsibility. And it was almost like the camera gave me an alter ego. And the camera, and if you talk to any seasoned photojournalist, they will talk about, especially if they've covered traumatic events around the world, the camera can really be useful in not only documenting what's in front of you, but protecting you and protecting your emotions from what you're photographing. So going back to Katrina, one of the reasons it took me so long to realize how badly I had gotten messed up in photographing Katrina was that I had the camera as protection to protect me from that trauma. And eventually it all gets through eventually. But what I did was I turned the camera on my father and he became a story. And that became part of my protection from dealing with some of the deeper emotions that I was feeling then, and I think come out in some of the writing in the book. But the letters are really quite beautiful. And so I was, somebody asked me recently, you know, why publish your father's letters now? And I've actually been working on this project for a long time, for since before Katrina, since 2003, 2004, when I first transcribed them and put together a prototype to pass around to various people to get advice. And then I had an exhibit at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art in the fall of 2007, which was called Love Daddy. And it featured about 42 of the photographs and 15 of the letters. And the Ogden has actually put up half of the exhibit to mark the publication of the book. And the other half of the exhibit is up right now at the Southside Gallery in Oxford. So I've split it in half because I didn't want to do the whole exhibit. 
but it's so it's up in two different places and it really complements the the publication of the book but that that was the origins of the book of how the book came about and then a key detail is that one of the people I sent the early prototype to was Curtis Wilkie recently retired from the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi and Curtis is an old friend and an old friend of my father's and I dug out the letter he had written me in February of 2005 where he talked about he wanted to know more hear more from me more specifically about who I was and what I was doing and did I have any letters that I had written my to my father there were a few but I didn't have them they were probably in my father's papers at Ole Miss and they they wouldn't maybe there were 10 compare that to 100 it, it just wouldn't work and I think in a subsequent conversation with Curtis he we started talking about self-portraits and he said, I really want to know what the young man to whom your father was writing was looked like. So that's when I started pulling self-portraits and adding them to the narrative. And photographers, when they're coming up, self-portraiture is a great way of, it's an assignment. It's an assignment in any college or photo class. Take a self-portrait. And so I had all these self-portraits. I love doing self-portraits. And I kept finding them and I kept finding more pictures of my father. I made it a point to go through every roll of film I could find from 1975 to 1999. And I found a whole bunch of stuff that I had never seen before or I had forgotten about. And I was still finding notes and letters till well after our deadline. So there's just lots of stuff there. And I'm really happy with how it also came together. But I admit it, it is a pretty heavy emotional load. I was thinking about you and your book when Kimberly and I were out to dinner with a man this week who wasn't an, an artist or writer, but had, has a very larger than life, had, who has passed as well, a larger than life father. And just we were having conversations about that, how complicated it was in that way of especially men of a certain generation. And I think this man is probably around your age or somewhere between you and me or Kimberly and us or whatever. So I was thinking about that. And I think it strikes me that there are probably a lot of people in this case, men and sons, but it's obviously true for women as well, who go through their lives, not really either having or taking that opportunity to come to terms with these things that I think come out from your book about the, the difficult parts of being someone's child and growing up in those ways. And, and so I was telling this person, you, you have to meet David Ray and talk about these things because this book is just, it feels like an exercise in that in some ways, as well as other things. And so I guess what the question is there and not just a comment would be, What'd you learn about yourself through all of this and, and all this self-portraiture in various ways? I, one thing I want to add that sort of helps put this in perspective is that my father and probably your two fathers um, <laughs> and maybe Kimberly's father too, they were from a generation of men hmm. born before World War II who couldn't, they never learned really how to express their emotions directly and honestly. And so my father, he couldn't really say the basic things that we're, we've come to know. He, he couldn't just say, I love you. 
unless he'd been drinking. However, since he became such an immensely talented writer, he could write these things. He could communicate them. He just couldn't do it face-to-face in a direct and honest and sober manner. So that added to my confusion of how it affected me in the long term. Obviously, I grew up in a generation which was a little, where it was a little easier to express those emotions directly. Although I think that's not a given. You still need to work at it. But then after my father died, I became a father myself. So the whole idea that now I've got this huge body of letters that I'm working with, and now I have a young child who I obviously make an impression on, and how is my being, how am I going to influence my daughter's upbringing? in a healthy and honest and loving way. So it's really, I feel the overall scope of the project becomes the before and the after. And that the reasons I was so reluctant to become a father had a lot to do with the baggage that I was carrying from my own father. And I had to go through a process to realize that these things were, that they weren't made up, but that I was scaring myself into not moving forward and that that ultimately the only reason the only way you're going to overcome some of these issues is by just getting out there and doing it and so as i watched my daughter grow up i would have these flashbacks how my father might have behaved in a similar situation and how was i going to do this differently and of course the other thing is that my daughter was born two days before my 42nd birthday and now she's 20. So talk about time flying. And she's in college and she's driving and she has two jobs and she's fairly responsible. My father was 24 when I was born. I have no doubt that the 17 years, intervening years, gave me a certain amount of wisdom that that my father didn't have access to at the time. That doesn't mean I'm a better parent. It just means that I had more time to contemplate the world and what was going on around me and how I was going to apply that to to, uh, to bringing a child into the world. And I re- recycle all this in the epilogue of the book. The way the book is structured, we have a forward, a great forward by Kaylee Jones, who I want to talk about in a little bit. And then my introduction, which sets everything up. And then it's divided into three sections, part one, part two, and part three, which I didn't realize until about three months ago was the exact configuration of my father's first book, North Toward Home, which was divided into three sections all about places he'd lived. And in that case, it was Mississippi, Texas, and New York. And in this case, it's New York and Mississippi. So the first section is Bridgehampton. The second section is Oxford. The third section is Jackson. It was treated in a very similar, similar way. And then I have an epilogue where I talk about my daughter growing up and my mother, who is still alive, but in declining health, and how all of these things that happened with the pandemic and my daughter going off to college, how that affected my sense of parenthood and adulthood and being being an adult, defining myself as, a, as an adult. Because one of the things my father talks about in a piece he wrote for Parade Magazine in 1984, which I introduced in my introduction, is can a son truly be a man until after his father dies? And I, at the time he wrote that, I thought, 
I took issue with it saying, because I was 24 and working for the Delta Democrat Times, I was on top of the world. I thought I, w- I thought I was a man. And after he died, I thought maybe, maybe he was right. Because when you go through the death of a parent, no, ma- no matter how, whether it happens suddenly or over a period of time, it, you certainly gained, gained a great deal of emotional perspective. Fast forward 22 years and I'm dealing with my mother, my 86-year-old mother with Parkinson's and my 20-year-old daughter who's driving and off in college and graduated high school in the middle of the pandemic and all the the stuff and wondering, maybe I'm not an adult yet. Maybe all this stuff is all grist for my mill. And maybe when it's over, then I can declare myself an adult. But right now it's just, it's really confusing and crazy. Yeah, you were talking about people of a certain generation not being able to say I love you or things like that. And I think there's a particular kind of way that manifests itself in that generation and Southerners. I don't know if it's better or worse, but you, it is two of one, almost exactly the same story of that showing you I care about you in different ways or when I'm under the influence, depending on what was going on. A friend of mine, not a friend of mine, a pundit, a podcaster I listen to, he's Irish. He calls it his dad would put his feelings in the Irish feelings box and you'll deal with the feelings later. I think there's a Southern feeling box somewhere because that is a particular way of looking at the world. And even in the best of times, a particular difficulty in your life from day to day, if you were, if you were an, if you are an 82 year old Southerner of any stripe or any, it was tough times, even when the times were good. I want to talk to you a little bit about Mississippi, because I think of you as a Mississippian. Not exactly a Mississippian, but close. <laughs> I got folks buried there. <laughs> yeah, right. You, you, oh, you I are, count. I count. You count. And you worked here. It's, you lived here. It's, you count. You were talking about when your father kept, moved into the small town, quieter life. Do you think that was a longing for Mississippi or... What do you? What was your understanding of how he felt about Mississippi when you were growing up? And did he think he was coming back? I think there was never any question that my father loved Mississippi and that he loved Yazoo City, where he grew up. But it was obvious that, and and he always liked liked to quote David Sansing, the late great historian from the University of Mississippi, who said, "Sometimes you love Mississippi, but Mississippi doesn't love you back." And so my father saw the reality of Mississippi in the 1950s. And what really drove it home was when he went off to the University of Texas to go to college. And he credits his own father with going out there on his own and wandering around the UT campus and coming back and telling my father that you really need to get out of Mississippi and you need to go to Austin because the University of Texas is where you need to be. And it's not necessarily that Texas was tremendously more progressive than Mississippi, but there was enough of a difference that I think it really set him apart. And he was able to see things more clearly. And what I like to say is that when he left Mississippi in 1952, he basically went into self-imposed exile for 30 years because uh, three years after he left, we had we had Brown 
Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, we have Emmett Till in 1955, Medgar Evers in 1963, James Meredith in 1962, and the integration of the university. All these really tremendously traumatic events for the state of Mississippi. And he wasn't there. He wasn't experiencing it firsthand. And I think he really couldn't be here for that because it hurt him too much because he loved Mississippi so much. But he understood that it just wasn't, he just couldn't be there. And it was really not until after the schools integrated and after things in the 70s, when things for a good while seemed like they were going okay. And then his mother died. And then he was invited to come to the university in 1980. And I think he came back and he was just delighted to be back. And he just dove into the to the way things were in 1980. And But my relationship with Mississippi is much different. And I always said that he could look at Mississippi and see how far it had come and be happy. And I always look at Mississippi as where it is now and how much farther down the road we got to get. But there was never any question that he just loved Mississippi, but he really spent, even after he returned, he devoted his writing to making Mississippi a better place, whether it was writing the courting of Marcus Dupree and examining the irony of this great running back coming out of a, a town with such a tortured history or whether it was supporting William Winter, who for a time was the great hope for the future in his administration in the early 80s. So he loved Mississippi, and I think he would be appalled at the state of affairs today. Well, what all to say about this (laughs) as someone who ran. And and I had read Willie's work over the years, and it spoke to me in various ways and, and spoke to me as as much as anything as just feeling that uh, push-pull of loving a place or wanting to love a place, because we don't always, the love isn't always consistent. We get mad, we get really mad at it. And then we go and people still do it. And then a, a good number of us come back eventually and try to do whatever we try to do. And then, so I hear you, it's like this, you get mad because it, it can't go further. But I will say, by the way, I should also say, I also identify with Willie kind of getting mad at New York City and being sick of the, <laughs> sick of some of the that stuff too that showed up in his writing, that, that kind of push-pull between the North and the South. So I always appreciated, appreciated all of that honesty, like working all that out in public was always very interesting to me. But so what's my point is to come back to you, it's in your next generation. And you, I know you pretty well, and I know that you, you, I know your views and that you're pretty outspoken about racism, but other things as well. I know your daughter and are getting to know her as an adult now. And she's, first of all, Uma is just fantastic, but it's like outspoken and y'all want to, you call things out. You express yourself in a way that probably goes past what your father did or is stronger in many ways. And I think you're touching on that, but it's just that, that, that thing about Mississippi and maybe do you think it's, do you think it's easier for you because you didn't grow up here or with the same kind of deep ties that, that some of us who are maybe not even ties, but conflict to be more straightforward about those things, or is that generational? Is that just gets easier later on? I mean, I think it's still hard for me because I can still see all of the craziness. Yeah. And yeah. I can't, I'm not always in a position to 
to step up to the plate and deal with that craziness. I've got my friends in Hines County and I've got friends in Warren County and I got friends in Lafayette County. I, I love Mississippi too. That comes with a burden. And I think my father understood the burden more than anyone else. And he was committed to dealing with that. And I've got a quote that I think is in the book somewhere, but he recognized that this was a lifelong burden and that he was going to be dealing with it every day. And I don't quite have that as much because I grew up in New York City. And I tell the story about going to Yazoo City in 1967 with my father for National Library Week when he read from North Toward Home, which had not come out yet. And he read to the, to the White High School. And then a few days later, he read at Indy Taylor, which also called Number Two, which was the Black High School. And I have this very vivid memory of wandering around backstage behind the curtain in the auditorium at Indy Taylor, and then looking around the curtain and looking out and seeing the sea of black faces. And it didn't make any sense to me. I didn't understand because I had black classmates and Hispanic classmates and Asian classmates. And I'm not trying to say that I was better because of that. It's just, I didn't understand why we had, why they had to be two separate systems. And fast forward 40 years and I, I started working on another Willie inspired project, which was my film Yazoo Revisited, which was specifically about the integration mm. of the schools, revisiting the immigration of the schools in 1970. And my father was an optimist and he wrote a book about it called Yazoo Integration in a Deep Southern Town. And I approached that using that text as my primary, that in North Toward Home as my primary source to discover whether integration really was truly successful. And I dug really deep and I had some fascinating interviews with people, many of whom have subsequently passed, who really put the whole event and the whole process into a different light for me. And that's how we got to where we are now. And it's an ongoing thing. We got to keep working at it. One of our viewers has a question. Avery Rollins wants to know, and this is a, it's a, it's a good question. It's a tough question, but our producer, as usual, is telling us we only have a few minutes. But how will you feel when you're older than your father when he passed? I've been asked that before because I'm 62 and a half. My father died when he was 64. And there seems to be, that seems to be a sort of a mile marker in people's lives. If you can pass the point when specifically, or in my case, in your, my father, when I'm 64, aside from the Beatle jokes, it's, I almost, I'm tempted to say, ask me when I'm 64, but I am aware of the impending conjunction and I'm not sure how I feel about it. On the one hand, I'm happy to be here and still reasonably, as best I can tell, healthy. But the shadow, the Willie shadow still casts a great light. And I ask myself, have I accomplished in my 62 and a half years an iota of what he accomplished in his 64 years? And I don't know. I, mean, I guess that's something that, that comes out in the laundry, as you would say. But that's an interesting question. And it, is, it has certainly been on my mind. David, I don't want to get out of here without giving you the opportunity to talk a little bit about that just outstanding Kayla Jones introduction, the daughter of the great author, James Jones. Uh, just talk a little bit about that. I'm just so honored. And I always try to give a shout out to Kaylee during events like this. Kaylee and I 
were very close when we were in high school. And I spent a lot of time, of course, she grew up in Paris, France, and her father moved her family back to the States in 1974 and eventually settled in a farmhouse in Sagaponic, New York, just down the road from my father, surrounded by potato fields. And as, as Kaylee says in her foreword, she said, my father dubbed it Chateau Spud, seeing the, the great antique French furniture. And of course, her father died in 1977, and um, I'm only about eight months older than she. And then we both graduated high school in 1977, and she went off to Wesleyan, and I went off to Hampshire. And our lives went in different directions. It wasn't that we didn't love each other. We just went in different directions and didn't see each other for a very long time. And when I was trying to get this project wrapped up, I thought the only person who could really write a four would have been Christopher Dickey, who was the son of the poet James Dickey, who my father thought was the greatest living American poet of his generation. But Christopher Dickey died. He, Christopher Dickey wrote a great book called Summer of Deliverance about his relationship with his father. And it was really stunning for me to read that because he'd be describing something and I thought he was writing something about me. And so I was resolved after he died several years ago that I wasn't going to have a forward. Um, but I mentioned Kaylee's book, Lies My Mother Never Told Me, in my introduction. And I thought I need to read that so I will at least know what, what I'm talking about. And I read it and it just, it blew me away because I knew all the characters. I knew her parents. I knew her. I knew her brother, Jamie. I knew the, the cousins. I knew the satellite friends she talks about. And I had this stunning revelation that she was the only person that could write this forward. And long story short, I hadn't talked to her in 20 years. I hadn't communicated with her in a dozen. And I tracked her down and I told her, I said, Kaylee, you're the only person who can do this. And I think what she wrote was beautiful. It was honest. It was loving. And it really adds a dimension that wasn't there before. So I'm deeply grateful that she she did what she did. And I'm hoping we're hoping to do some events on the East Coast in the fall. It'll be great to see her because, again, I haven't seen her since a screening of My Dog Skip in New York in, I think, December of 1999. I'm very grateful. Kaylee, if you're watching, I love you. And we're going to get together soon, I hope. So. It is a beautiful, it's wonderful. And I can understand why you're excited about it because it's just breathtaking. David, time went fast. Time <laughs> flies when you're having time fun. Does. It does. And I knew it was going to be a great conversation. And I'm, and again, I'm not just saying this because, you know, we're friends. This is a wonderful book. And I will challenge anybody in Mississippi has ever told a Willie story, go get this book because you will sell a lot of copies of this book if people do that, but others as well, because it's just, it's got every, it's got, it, it's got the, the dimensions of your father as well as you in there. And I it's, think it's just. Uh, that's right. Know, it's got, it's got letters. It's got love. It's got turmoil. It's got dogs. It does. It's got, it's it's got it's everything cats. Mississippi and cats. It's got cats. It's, it's got everything it's, Mississippi. Yeah, and what your cat Winky Mo now is named Winky after. Mo. That was I, that I was Willie's Winky's nickname. Winky's not in, otherwise I I'd pull him. I up. met him last week, but that's that was Willie's nickname as a child, I believe you said. So, yes, um, yeah, so lots of cats. Yes, Although he did. came to cats later in life, so he did. Um, he was a dog. He was a dog man growing up, and then he became Joanne, made him a cat man. That's right. <laughs> and so here we are. But thank you so much for joining us thank today. You. Thank you, ladies. It's it's just, been a tremendous amount of fun. Always. And thanks for everyone.
tuning in. Thank you so much, Davey Ray. See y'all soon. MFP Live is a production of the Mississippi Free Press, reader-supported solutions journalism for the Magnolia State. You'll find it at mfp.ms. MFP live streams most Thursdays on the MFP's Facebook and YouTube pages where you can listen live and participate in the show by commenting. The MFP Live podcast is an edited version of the live show. The hosts of MFP Live are MFP co-founders Donna Ladd and Kimberly Griffin. This episode of MFP Live was produced by Todd Stauffer. The podcast was produced by Courtney Munkier and it's available on popular listening apps and platforms. Learn more at mfp.ms slash live.